I want to talk about four things that John knew tonight. It says in John 3 and 23, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. That's a good place to baptize then. If there is much water, uh, it's kind of a necessary quantity for uh, baptism, which uh, scripturally is always done uh, by immersion. Uh, so you need a, a healthy supply of water, at least deep enough to place somebody entirely under the water. Uh, if, if you were to do a word study on the word baptism, you would find that the word baptizo, which is the Greek word, means to dip, to immerse, to make fully wet. That's why here at the Jesus Church, we're striving to, to follow the biblical model. And so we baptize by immersion. But there was water there, and they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. And there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, speaking, of course, of Jesus Christ here, he said, they said, Behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. And John answered and said, Probably something the Pharisees were not expecting. Uh, Pharisees, or those of the Pharisees, they, they're going to come and they're going to, uh, they're going to expect John to defend his quote-unquote turf, what is his ground. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said... I am not the Christ, but I, that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Travail has broken out in the house already. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Has anybody ever been the best man at a wedding? Or maybe a groomsman at a wedding? How about a maid of honor? I'm getting some shaken heads. If you're friends with the person, you're excited to be there, not because you're the one getting married, but you're excited for your friend. I remember standing on the platform just a couple of people over at the Stewie wedding where I was on my absolute best behavior, being sternly warned uh, of the Lord uh, and others to be on my best behavior. And I remember just the sheer joy in the eyes of the Stewies on their wedding day. And that's what John is drawing a comparison to. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm not the bridegroom, but I'm joyous because of the bridegroom's voice. And my joy is fulfilled in this. And then John says this sentence in John chapter 3 and verse 30. He says, he must increase but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. Again, I teach tonight about four things John knew. John the Baptist's life is a fascinating study in Scripture. And even before conception, 
He is known, he's named, he's prophesied of. Like others before in Scripture, John's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, they have struggled with barrenness. There are many scriptural examples of this, Sarah and her her struggles against barrenness. And finally, Isaac is brought into the world. And then there's Rebecca and Esau and Jacob. Rebecca spends about 20 years praying Isaac and Rebecca for a child. And then you've got Rachel and who she finally births Joseph. And we know Joseph to be a, a, a great man of God. And then there's Hannah who in great bitterness of soul is weeping through her barrenness. And she is promised a child by Eli the priest. And she brings in Samuel, one of the greatest and the, the ushering in of the age of of the prophets and the judges. And Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, the Bible begins to tell us some of the story of John, of Zacharias, of the course of Abiah. His wife also was of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And watch this sentence. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they were both or they both were now well stricken in years. That's a great way of saying that they were old. So if you ever want to talk to one of your elders in the church to say, hey, my brother, that is well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office. Before God and the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So he's working in the house of God, and he has a specific duty that he's going through. It is his course, it is his week, and so he's being faithful. And the whole multitude of people were praying without at the time of incense. So out in the court of the temple, there's a multitude of people that are praying. Zechariah is the only one in the temple. And he is burning incense or offering incense on the altar before the Lord. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. Let's let's pause for a moment and just address that portion of Scripture we just read. I would go out on a limb and posit to you that Zacharias probably hasn't prayed for a child in quite a while. The Bible just told us that he and his wife are now old and well stricken in years. Go ahead and smack your neighbor and tell him, man, you are well stricken in years. (laughs) Every husband in the place just got nervous. That's a prayer that 20-year-olds pray. That's a prayer that 30-year-olds pray. Maybe even 40-year-old folks pray for kids. And I don't doubt with, with anything in my mind that they prayed fervently more than one time. I I doubt it was just a one-time prayer on a Sunday service when Zechariah was burning incense when he first started in the temple at 25. God, we don't have any kids yet. Lord, give us kids. I, I would wager that they prayed faithfully 
for this. And it seemed like God was not going to grant it. But that prayer never died. God answered the prayer in his time. And an angel steps into his day without any warning, without any foreshadowing. Zacharias is going faithfully about his day from a prayer that he prayed years ago. And all of the sudden, God answers in that day. An angel steps into the room where he's at and says, fear not, Zacharias, thy prayer is heard. You see... Many of us have prayed some things a while ago. We might still be praying some things that we keep praying over and over and over. But I want you to know, I want you to understand that your prayer does not die. God answered that prayer in his time, in his moment. It wasn't the moment that Zacharias wanted. Any normal person wants to have kids in their 20s or in their 30s, uh, but in their 40s, maybe. And Zacharias was probably approaching age 50 if he was still serving in the temple at this point when God, in his time, steps in and says, hey, your prayer has been heard and it's been answered. But notice what Zachariah and Elizabeth were. God hadn't answered their prayer until this moment. But the Bible says that they were still faithful and they were still righteous and they were still walking blameless before the Lord. How are you going to act when God doesn't answer your prayer for 10 years? When God doesn't answer your prayer for 20 years, when you're getting so old, you don't even believe it to be possible anymore. How are you going to act? What's your attitude going to be? How are you going to behave if God never answers the deepest cry of your heart? Are you still going to be faithfully burning the incense in the house of the Lord? Is God still going to be able to say you're blameless, you're righteous, you're walking before me with a pure motive and a pure attitude. See, we know he hadn't prayed this prayer in a while because when the fulfillment was prophesied, he speaks doubt back to the angel. He says, how is this even possible? We're we're well stricken in years. He was old and he knew it. He, He believed in a God that said it was possible back then, but a God that makes it possible right now And so an angel, the angel says unto him, look, as a sign, you're going to be mute until this, this, this promised son is born. And from that moment until his son is born, Zacharias doesn't speak a word. I've come to encourage somebody today. I don't know how long you've been praying. I don't know how long you've been bringing it before the Lord. I, maybe you forgot that you even prayed it, but there's an answer on the way in God's time. When God deems it to be the right time, think of the confluence of events. Uh, Think of God's timing. Think of how God was working this whole thing out all along. Zacharias and Elizabeth praying for decades for a child. And in one moment in time, God says, now I'll answer right now. I'll perform what you've been asking. The angel gives specific instructions about his upbringing, and Luke then records in Luke chapter 1 and verse 80, the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Luke then begins to record the birth 
of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. And then in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist comes storming out of the wilderness. The word of God, it says in verse 2 of chapter 3, came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. It's encouraging to me, and it's pretty familiar with what Brother Houston just preached here a couple of Sundays ago. That word came to him in the wilderness. You don't have to be afraid of your wilderness. You don't have to struggle in the wilderness. You don't have to doubt in the wilderness. Because the word of God will come to you in your wilderness. The word of God will come to you when you feel like everything is dry and dead and you're all alone. But the word of God can make it to you. And so John comes into all the country around about Jordan. He's preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He's saying what was written in the book of Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every hill and mountain shall be brought low. The crooked shall be made straight and the rough places shall be made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. O generation of vipers who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He warns them and says, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. He, he challenges the people. Look, it's not enough for you to say you're repentant. It's not enough for you to voice it in front of a crowd. But there needs to be some fruit of repentance. And I don't think it would be out of line. I don't think it would be out of order, even in this day and age that we live in, uh, to demand and to proclaim that there ought to be some fruit of repentance. It's more than just a tear crying to say, I'm sorry. But the Bible does tell us godly sorrow begins to work repentance. It begins to stir something inside of us. But repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's, it's a change of direction. It's, it's purposing in our heart to lay some things aside. It's a refocusing of our mind on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. See, there's a difference between being sorry you did it and being sorry you got caught doing it. Those are different things. There's a difference between being sorry you did it and sorry that somebody found out you did it. There's a difference between being sorry you did it and sorry that you're now suffering the consequences of doing it. And so John says, look, you need to bring forth some fruits worthy of repentance. And don't get arrogant and say, look, I, I've got a spiritual pedigree. I, I grew up Christian. I, I grew up going to the house of God. I cut my teeth on the book of Leviticus. He said, no, 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 no. God can bring up children of Abraham out of these stones. And he says, the axe is now laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Boy, John's a pretty tough preacher. He comes in like a wrecking ball. It makes, it makes me look pretty tame on a Wednesday night. 
He comes in like a wrecking ball. His sermons were direct and fiery. There, there were no comforting platitudes. He did not try to sugarcoat it. He did not try to make it easy to swallow for sensitive ears and sensitive hearts. He delivered the word of God that came to him in the wilderness. He did not worry what anybody else thought of it. Maybe it would be good if we got back to that in 2022 where we could hear the voice of God and deliver the word of God. Uh, Yes, we need to have a pure motive. Yes, we have to have a right heart and a right spirit. Uh, But God help us if we're so soft-hearted that any word begins to offend us and and we begin to say, oh, the preacher was, he was so mean this Wednesday, I'm not going back. Uh, But he began to point his finger at the crowd and say, no, bring forth some fruits, meat for repentance. He began to warn them and say, an ax is left laid to the root of the tree. And if there's no fruit in that tree, it's being cast into the fire. His lifestyle was strange. It was coarse to the people of the day. John was a man that wore camel skins, a rough garment. It was, it was not the most attractive outfit for John to be wearing. He, he ate wild locusts and honey. Probably a very nutritious diet. But I'm going to skip it. I'll take, I'll take bread and milk and cheese over locusts and wild honey. But that's what was available in the wilderness that John lived in. There were no padded chairs. There was no air conditioning. There was only much water and a fiery word from God. And yet all the people came out to hear him. All of the people from the surrounding villages, multitudes began to come to John, both of the common people and the Pharisees, even the soldiers are coming to John. His anointing was undeniable. It was the result of extended time alone with God. It was John who heralded the arrival of the Messiah. It was John who shouted from the proverbial mountaintops. It was John who bare witness of the Spirit resting on Jesus like a dove and hearing the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. It was John who would declare, laying eyes on Jesus as he walked, Behold, uh, the Lamb of God. That was John. That was his ministry. That was his purpose. And in all likelihood, it lasted about a year or less before his life is ended by the executioner's axe, the result of a heathen, power-hungry monarch and his rash promises. Jesus spoke this of John in Luke chapter 7. It says in verse 24, when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out to see a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's court. But what what did you go out there for a prophet? Yea, and I say unto you, and much more than a prophet, this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. But I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God. 
is greater than he. What did John know that would allow him, a human like you and I, See, it's easy to read about people in the Word of God and, and somehow elevate them to a different platform or pedestal. The only perfect person that's ever walked the face of this earth was not John the Baptist. It was Jesus Christ. Because in Luke chapter 7, right before the verses we just read, John, who is in prison, sends disciples to Jesus and says, Look, are you the one that should come or are we looking for another? Even John the Baptist had his moments of weakness and moments of doubt. He was the one who had baptized Jesus. He'd seen the dove land on him. He had seen that, that, that sign from heaven. He had heard the voice of God. He had said, This is the Lamb of God. But now he's in a moment of weakness and he's doubting. But John down inside knew something that allowed him to complete his purpose. Paul wrote at a later place, he said, I have finished my course. I've finished my race. I've kept, I've kept going. I've, I've run with patience. I've stayed in with everything I've got. What did John know that would allow him, this, this human, to be content with anonymity in the wilderness? Sudden and massive prominence. John got famous, like first century famous, well known. Everybody wanted to see John. And then, after a short period of time, back to anonymity. And he dies alone in a prison. Imagine how hard that would be. But John knew four things. Number one and two are related. Number three and four are related. The first thing that John knew is John knew who he was not. In John chapter 3, like we read, John being written by John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. He, John boldly tells the crowd, look, I already told you, I am not the Christ. The reason the crowds are asking is because they thought it possible. Others in his day had already positioned themselves as the coming Messiah, but John would not do so. John had a revelation. He had an understanding of what he was not. It's a revelation that is necessary in our day and in our age and our hours. Uh, I am not the Messiah. I'll go one step further. I am not the King of Kings or the Lord of Lords. In fact, I'm not even a king. He is. I'm not in control. He is. Uh, I'm not the one that you should be strictly following. Though Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, but it's not about me. It's not about my kingdom. It's not even about my voice. It is his kingdom, it's about him recognize or being recognized and receiving the glory. John knew he was not the light of the world, nor the Lamb of God. And this understanding brings freedom into your life. 
Because it lifts a weight off of your shoulders. When you recognize what you are not, uh, it lifts a heavy weight of responsibility off of you uh, because it can then be placed in the hands of the one who is. Uh, when you understand that you don't have to be in control of every minutia of your life, uh, but you know the one who is in control, that's a weight that lifts off. Uh, when you know you don't have to have all the answers, uh, and you know the one who does have all the answers, it lifts a burden. I'll tell you, as a young pastor, as a new green pastor, it's one of the greatest things I've ever learned uh, is the power of the words, I don't know. Uh, and I've gained the ability to not be ashamed and not be afraid of saying that. Why? I don't have to know everything, uh, but I do know the one who does know everything, and I know how to get a hold of him. Uh, it's a revelation that we need, church. Uh, we are not the Savior of Watertown. He is. Uh, we're just the vessel that he has chosen, positioned, and equipped for this moment in time. John understood who he was not, even when the crowd tried to pick him up and tried to elevate him and tried to say, you can hear him almost saying it like, come on, tell us you're the Messiah. Tell us you're the one that should come. And John said, no, 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 no. That is not my role. Like a small dog feeling the burden of pack leadership, there are too many people walking around with weights they were never intended to carry, all because they're trying to occupy a chair that you were never intended to occupy. It's like spiritual small dog syndrome. You ever seen that chihuahua that thinks it runs the house? And everybody puts up with it because it, it weighs like three pounds and it can't do any harm anyways. If the dog were like 80 pounds, it, we would have put it down already. Because it's trying to exert authority. It's trying to be in control and in charge. And sometimes that's how we look uh, with our puny human attempts to try to control and try to exert authority where we do not have it because he has it. We're angry. We're defensive. We're defending turf that's not even rightfully ours to defend. But if we would ever get to the revelation of the fact uh, of who we are not, I am not the Christ. He is. I'm not the end all be all. He is. I'm not the one that should come. He is. It's not my personality that wins people. It's his spirit. It's not my words strictly that is going to convert the soul. It's his words. And it's a freeing revelation. The second thing is John knew who he was. First, he said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent to bear witness of the Christ. I am sent before him. Isaiah called him the voice of him crying in the wilderness. Just because John realized he wasn't the Messiah, that doesn't mean that he realized he was worthless or not important. Jesus, in fact, called him the greatest prophet. Just because you're not the one or just because maybe you're not the apostle or you're not the prophet or you're not the preacher or you're not the, the, the Sunday school teacher or you're not singing the solo or maybe you're never called to pulpit ministry. That does not mean you're not valuable or not important. You might not ever be the most spiritual person in your home, but that does not mean you don't have value and you don't have a role to play. 
That doesn't mean your life is meaningless or worthless because there is great value in understanding who you are, your identity in Jesus Christ. Every single person under the sound of my voice, God has a plan and a purpose for you and you specifically. He has a calling for you to fulfill. And if you're so busy trying to be something or somebody else, you're missing out on the anointing God wants to pour out on you. Uh, You don't have to be the most powerful preacher if God didn't call you to be the powerful preacher. You don't have to be the anointed singer if God didn't call you to be the anointed singer. He might have called you to be the anointed bus driver or the anointed Bible study teacher. But when you get a revelation of who you are uh, and who you are not, uh, the kingdom will advance because now you can step into your identity. Now you can step into your purpose. Now you can be what God has equipped and called you to be. John occupied his role and fulfilled his calling. He did not try to be someone or something else. But he was content to be him. Even when being him meant that his disciples would gradually drift towards Jesus and his crowds would get smaller and smaller and his preaching would eventually get him killed. Will you be satisfied to be what God has called you to be? Do you know what God has called you to be? Do you know who you are? Perhaps you sit in this place tonight and you're not sure and you're not clear and there's not a clear voice from the Lord. That's a conversation that you and Jesus need to have. That's a conversation you should probably begin to have with spiritual leadership in your life. Who am I? I can tell you as a generic who you are. You're a child of the king. You're an anointed man or woman. God has called you. God has positioned you. God has adopted you into his his family, but there is a specific role. There is a specific purpose for each of us. So don't try to be me. Don't try to be somebody famous. Don't try to be Bishop. Don't, don't try to be brother Miller. Just, just be you be the best version of you that is possible. And by the way, the best version of you is the one that's obedient to his will. The one who's willing to be whatever he calls you to be, no matter what it costs. See, John knew who he was not. And John knew who he was. The third thing John knew is John knew that Jesus must increase. Knowing Jesus was the Messiah, John understood, of course, yes, he must increase. And most, if not all, in this room today have that knowledge and understanding. Jesus must be lifted up. To increase is oxano in the Greek. It means to grow, to enlarge, to grow up, to give the increase. Isaiah 9 and 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever. Because John had a revelation of who he was, he knew what he had to do. He had to see Jesus 
increased. And because he was comfortable operating in his role, in his position, and in his calling, he was able to begin to lift his voice uh, and do what John was called to do to grow the kingdom of God. Jared has to do what Jared is called to do to grow the kingdom of God. Uh, brother or, or Sister Tori has to do what Sister Tori is called to do to grow the kingdom of God. Each one in our own way, in our own life, when you wake up tomorrow morning, should be asking him, Lord, how can I increase your kingdom today? How can I make you greater? How can I spread the truth? How can I share the gospel, Lord, somewhere? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in my life, Lord. See, I must be proclaiming the name of Jesus and his greatness at every opportunity. What is there in my life that is actively declaring, behold, the Lamb of God and pointing people to him? What is there in your day? What did you do or what did you say today to declare, behold, the Lamb of God? Was the attention on you or was the attention to him? Were you pointing people directly to Jesus or were you willing to allow the gaze of the crowd to remain on you? As John said, he must increase. It's the why of worship and praise. It's, it's why we come into the house. Uh, it's why we begin to lift our voice. We begin to magnify him. We begin to exalt his name together. Why? Because he must increase his fame, uh, his glory, his notoriety, his, his renown among the people of Watertown. It has to increase. And the last thing that John knew is this. John knew that he must decrease. And this is the sticking point. This is where the flesh fights the hardest. Of course Jesus must increase. He's God. He's the King of Kings. He's, he's the Lord of Lords. Nobody's going to argue with me about that, but... I must decrease? Is it, is it not possible for these two things to, to exist together? How come Jesus can't increase and I just, I just stay little old me? See, it's, it's the question, it's the uncomfortable part of the equation, but John had understanding and had revelation of it. It's what allowed John to go off into a prison. It's what allowed John uh, to see his disciples uh, just walk away from him. He says, behold, uh, the Lamb of God. And Andrew and Simon immediately leave from following John. And they follow Jesus and say, Rabbi, uh, where are you going? We want to go with you. That takes a big leader. That takes somebody uh, who's willing to say he must increase. But for him to increase, we've got to realize we must decrease. 
These two things do not exist together. There's only one throne in heaven and one is seated on it. It was impossible for John and Jesus to co-rule. It is impossible for Jesus and Jared to co-rule. But what we want to do is come into the house of God and magnify him on a Sunday and then just leave him there enthroned here in this little room on a Sunday and go back to the God of self on Monday. We want to go back to the God of our lives, our plans, our schedules, our dreams, our plans, our desires of self, of comfort, of happiness. But Paul wrote what we must do. Paul uh, told us we have to be crucified uh, with Christ. Uh, Jared's plans, Jared's purposes, his desires, his dreams must be totally surrendered to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He uh, must increase. I must decrease. Uh, For God to be greater in my life, that means there has to be less of me in my life. Uh, There has to be less of my dreams my plans, my will. Uh, I must pray as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come. uh, Thy will be done. As Jesus himself modeled and exampled in the garden, he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass away from me. What was happening? Uh, Jesus was being lifted up, uh, but flesh was being pre-crucified in the garden. He was already submitted long before he went to a cross through a place of torment and agony. You see, his throne must be elevated, but my throne, it has to be abdicated. Uh, I've got to give it up. I've got to get off. Uh, I've got to say no more. I'm not in control. I'm not in charge. Uh, You are. Uh, In fact, I make myself less uh, and I make you greater. What is your will for my life, Lord? James writes in James 4 and 10, humble yourself. In the sight of the Lord. And he shall lift you up. He is the God of glory. And he is not going to share that with another. It was Lucifer that declared, I will ascend. I will exalt my throne. I will be like the most high. But it was David who declared in Psalm 17 and 15. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. And I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. See, when I get up tomorrow morning and I look in the mirror, yes, I might see this flesh, uh, but what I really want to see is Jesus on the throne uh, of my life. I don't want to see my plans coming to fruition, but his will sitting off to the side. Uh, If it costs me my dreams, uh, but his kingdom advances, uh, it must be so. Uh, It must be so in my life. Uh, If I never get to retire how I want, want to retire, if I never get to achieve that dream job uh, that I've desired, uh, if I never get to vacation in the Bahamas, uh, but his kingdom advanced through me because I understood my purpose and my calling, uh, then it must be so. Uh, He must increase. I uh, must decrease. Uh, What dreams, what plans, uh, what desires are holding you back from pursuing all that God uh, has called you to be. Will you be satisfied when you awake with his likeness? 
Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 as we stand together tonight. But God forbid that I should glory. Paul had done a few things in his day. Before he was a Christian, he was a model student, a Roman citizen, a respected individual. After he was a Christian, he was probably the single greatest church planner that ever walked the face of this earth. Yet none of that meant anything to him. Because Paul was not interested in building his name or his kingdom. And we see Paul writing, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a strange thing to brag about. It's a rare thing to brag about in our day. We identify ourselves by so many other things. You meet a guy for the first time. By the way, all guys do this. Ladies usually introduced by kids. Those kind of things. Family. What's the first question a guy asks a guy when they meet? What do you do? We're looking for identity. We're, we're trying to identify. It goes, even, it goes even deeper than that. It's even worse than that. Because that's a social pecking order as well. We're trying to establish a stratification of society to figure out where we fit in in the social group. Paul could have easily said, look, I'm the biggest, I'm the chiefest apostle. I'm big, I'm bad, I'm cooler than all y'all. I've had more stripes, I've been more shipwrecked, I've been stoned and left for dead. Like with rocks. I feel like we should clarify that. And yet the only thing Paul chooses to brag about is to say, I, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a Roman citizen, tradition in history, which is just that, it's not the inspired word of God, but tells us that Paul was spared the cross because of his citizenship. It was a, an exceedingly gruesome death reserved for usually for slaves or deserting soldiers or the enemy captured soldiers. Non-citizen criminals, thieves, murderers, robbers, rebellious. And yet here's Paul saying, I identify primarily with this gruesome, disgusting, and shameful spectacle of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. He says, the world is crucified unto me and I Unto the world. What if it never works out the way you wanted it to work out? What if you're never well known? What if your prayers never answered in the time you wanted it answered? Will you be content to know who you're not? Who you are. Will you be content to know that Jesus must increase and you must decrease? Are you content to identify yourself solely by the cross of Jesus Christ? If I'm going to brag about anything, I want it to be about Jesus' blood on 
my life? Will you be like David and say, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness? If you don't like who you are when you look in the mirror, and I'll be honest, there's periods and times in my life where I've been there. You look in the mirror and you're just like, man, what am I doing? Anybody ever been there? Who are you trying to be? What are you trying to be? When this world looks at me, when this world looks at you, when this world looks at this church, I want them to see these four things. I want them to see these four mindset, these four attitudes. I want them to see Jesus high and lifted up. I want Jesus to be my glory. I want Jesus to be the thing that my life points to. Every facet, every area, every corner of my life, I want to point them to Jesus. Tomorrow, somehow and some way, some activity or some interaction that I engage in, uh, I want something in my life tomorrow to be like John standing by the riverbanks uh, and pointing his hand and saying, Behold, uh, the Lamb of God. There he goes right there. Something that I do tomorrow, something that I do this week, something in my life has to point people to him. 